For May 8th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 462. Guardians of the Galaxy, volume 2. Whistle while you work. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny and probably doesn't deserve. We're talking Guardians of the Galaxy. That's right. We are your smart, funny friends from the internet. And it's always like Christmas around here when a major studio blockbuster tentpole uh, comes here so that we can just rip it to shreds. No, sorry. Sorry. Last week. Last week was the podcast on The Circle. This week was a podcast on a film that we all enjoyed. Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. Who are we, you ask i'm matt rather your host i am here with my fellow podcasters peter fenzel hello hey matt and uh and mark lee hey you could just call me mr blue sky uh. this week uh, and if you don't love me now you will never love me again i can still hear you saying don't ever break the chain of episodes of the overthinking it podcast which stretches back unbroken uh for eight years or more this is very exciting uh to to talk about this film this was a sort of highly anticipated movie the first one was such a um it seemed very pathbreaking in in the Marvel universe uh, because of its tone, uh, largely for issues of tone and emphasis. Uh, you know, where, whereas the the uh, main line of the Marvel Marvel Cinematic Universe tends to be very self serious, um, uh, sort of philosophical. It has that kind of Whedon esque, uh, you know, weightiness um, to it, whether earned in many cases or unearned in in a few outliers, um, and. And, and this was just a romp, right? Like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume One was just a romp, and was a the, you know space opera. And you know comparisons were made to the original Star Wars um, and to sort of adventure uh, film rather than sort of uh, sci-fi issue uh, kind of uh, kind of action adventure movies. And and uh, so this this sequel is is hotly anticipated, and I think delivers on a number of fronts that it was uh, it was made to. Uh, it was made to deliver on. Um, so we're going to be talking about it. Spoiler alert! From this point on, we're going to talk about everything that happens in uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Uh, this is your final warning. Stop now if you don't want to know. Okay, just to prove I'm serious, Kurt Russell dies. <laughs> they, they kill Kurt Russell, right? Like that's. Uh, um, Sort of the the story of this movie. It's uh, whereas the first one was really a man versus man story. This is sort of a man versus self story, or the kind of self that is uh, uh, that is entailed by parentage uh, and descent and legacy. And this is uh, you know, and and I guess I guess to a certain extent, like genetic makeup, right? Like ethnic makeup. Um, you know, if you are part uh, part human and part celestial, you know, what are your special obligations um, or the the sort of special waivers you get for for normal ethical behavior uh, is a, is a question that that this film asks and that uh, Chris Pratt answers with a uh, with a, a blinding flash of laser gunfire. So uh, <laughs> let's let's dive in and let's um, let's talk about it. Pausing only to uh, pausing only to note that that we are still selling in the Overthinking It store the book club for George Orwell's classic novel 1984. For some reason this year sales of this novel have spiked uh we were totally totally surprised by that fact and wondered why this might be so we uh read 1984 and recorded a series of three hour-long podcasts one on each section about equal length sections of the novel and then a fourth one on the the decisive and persuasive influence of of this novel in our our popular culture i mean orwellian has become an adjective in common speech and that is uh not something Thing you can say about every uh, about every author, and uh, it was uh, it was available to our overthinking members um, as we were recording it. But now that the whole thing is complete, if you would like to find. 
uh, find out what the big deal is with overthinking uh, with uh, overthinking George Orwell's 1984. Head over to overthinkingit.com/slash store and figure out uh figure out what the big deal is about that's overthinkingit.com slash store uh to get the downloadable audio commentary on 1984 uh the triumphant return of the overthinking it book club and finally uh before the next podcast we are going to be meeting in new york to uh to celebrate a momentous occasion one that we uh we come together very often to commemorate together that is the eurovision song uh Contest now. If you've seen our our videos on overthinking it on uh, YouTube, uh, go to the overthinking. If you haven't seen those, go to the overthinking it channel on YouTube. Just search for overthinking it on YouTube. You'll find it there. And uh, if you are enticed by the spectacle of the most gaudy, uh, the most campy, and the most catchy uh, pop music singing competition uh, slash you know um, continental party that Europe has to offer, uh, come enjoy it from afar with us in New York City on May 13th. It is May 13th uh, at 2 p.m. at the Liberty on 35th Street in New York. You can find information about that on our Facebook page. All right. Let's turn to... uh, Let's turn to uh, the film Guardians of the Galaxy Vol- Volume 2. Now, you've heard us say uh, Downton Abbey moment before uh, on this podcast, and it is, uh, it's a, a d- discursive tool that we use. It's similar to sort of any sort of literary seminar where you find a kind of paradigmatic passage uh, to, to you know, crystallize the, the, themes of, uh, uh, the themes of a particular, uh, of a particular work, like the, the you know... Um, uh, the Frankenstein monster learning learning to make fire with the uh, uh, with the wet wood that was unsuccessful, and then finding dry wood where he can make fire and you know create knowledge and and sort of learn. Uh, 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 any really any novel you would ever talk about would have something uh, something like this. Um, uh, Downton Abbey, the television show, was a master at this, and the Downton Abbey moments, as we came to call them, always had nothing to do with the main plot. Uh, and I think that this is a film with uh, a Downton Abbey moment. Pete Fenzel, you're the king of the Downton Abbey moment. Would you agree with my assessment? <laughs> I, I felt like there was a pretty clear Downton Abbey moment that really explained the movie for me. And I, I thought at first it was one thing, but then it turned out to be the other. So that was kind of exciting. Because you know that I love action movies that have... an idea, a sort of central idea that informs the way that the action plays out, right? Like uh, the car is falling down and Fast and Furious 7 is the one I always bring up. Uh, The the, the captain being lost in space in Star Trek Beyond. Uh, And I also love superhero movies where the powers that the superhero has are relevant to the way that the story works. And, And that sort of necessitates that this story be about that superhero rather than be about somebody else which and and some of the marvel movies do that some of the marvel movies don't very few of the dc movies do that uh but for this movie i felt like the downton abbey moment and and this movie i felt like is defined in that sort of latter superhero sense more by the villain than by the hero and i felt like this was maybe the strongest marvel villain we've seen yet in terms of his role in the story but the big downton abbey moment for me took place on the ship up in orbit or what have you, where uh, all of the people, it's, it's Drax is up there with Nebula and Rocket, I think, and they're all kind of talking to each other. And Nebula says to Gamora, um, all, you, all you do is yell at each other. You're not friends, right? You're not friends because you yell at each other all the time. And Drax says, no, we're family. Says, I don't have friends. I have family. <laughs> well, of course, right? And I, this blew my mind because I thought we just did a whole month on different meanings of family, right? For Fast for Fate of Furious, right? And, and here is a movie that is also an action movie about family, and it hits the one dimension that we didn't talk about, right. and, and that amazed me, right? And that and that dimension, and th- that dimension more than anything is that family are the people. For whom, with whom you are forced into conflict, right? More than anyone else, at some point, you have to conflict with your family, right? 
And this goes back to Matt when we were talking about the Robert Frost and this idea that family is where you have to go. They have to take you in versus you don't have to deserve being there. This is more in that door number one. This is this idea that uh, when you a family brings in a child into the world, right, either biologically or through adoption. Right. And the child at some point has to become an individual, has to go from being uh, a dependency, an extension of the parent. Right. To being an individual on their own. And there is always conflict involved in this individuation, adolescence. There's a reason that teenagers have a reputation for being difficult to deal with. And it's not just because they're mean or bad or because they don't understand rules. It's because it's part of what happens in their development. They need to slam doors. They need to create boundaries. Right. And for me. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is a movie about individuation and boundaries, particularly boundaries between parents and children and individuation from parents. And the difference between uh, supporting a child, fostering a child uh, in the name of extending yourself, in the name of kind of providing uh, a sort of, of sort of grandiosity to your own being versus the kind of support, the kind of fostering that you give to a child, knowing that the child is going to like yell back at you and is going to conflict with you and that you're going to have to come to some sort of relationship with the child. Uh, how, how do you communicate a love to somebody who is mad at you all the time? Mm-hmm. Is sort of a big question, and I think it's a big question that happens a lot in this movie. Yeah, I right? mean, Where, the, the, yeah. the answer of my experience is, is to be believed is by screaming, uh, yeah. by sc- <laughs> <laughs> loudly and frequently. Right, right. Well, and, and so, I, yeah. so I guess this, I'm going to put a, a concrete example of this on the table here, make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So to point out, there's so many different um, uh, sort of child-parent relationships going on here. Um, but let's focus in on the on the most important ones. Uh, Quill, uh, Peter Quill and Ego, right, a biological father, and then Peter Peter Quill and Yondu, uh, his adoptive father. Um, P- uh, Ego tries to be the smothering father, the very owning father, right, who doesn't who doesn't want to be uh, confronted with the conflict of the child eventually separating away, right? Which is why uh, Ego, you know, brings Peter to the planet. They have this nice father son uh, uh, time in this ridiculous game of. Uh, of catch with the energy ball. <laughs> it was oh, just pretty, so pretty funny. No, you it say, was really did your funny. whole theater um, laugh at that? And, My whole theater laughed. Oh, laugh. yeah, 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 yeah. It was a great yeah. moment. It was meant to be played for laughs, too. But it, was, it was touching, but it meant to play for laughs as well. Um, and then towards the end, right, you know, um, son, uh, come along with me on my maniacal mission of uh, uh, galactic d- destruction and dominance. I'm going to brainwash you. And when that doesn't work, I'm just going to sap the energy from you like you're a battery. Um, yeah. Right. So that's a very sort of a, a coddling and smothering type of parenting compared to uh, Quill's relationship with uh, Yondu. Yondu, as the parent, um, taught him how to do stuff, allowed him to break free. And they did have that conflict. Right. And a lot of this, of course, was in uh, volume one of Guardians of the Galaxy, which the, <clears throat> the plot details of which. I'm still a, a little bit shaky on the Wikipedia uh, thing on that, but you know there was there was breaking away. There was you know uh, Yondu tried to hunt him down uh, for, for the bounty, um, and this time of course you know Yondu uh, tragically at the end sets his son free and sacrifices himself uh, to the void uh, so that his son can live on. My son had grown up just like me. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, and and the other thing is there's there's these parent relationships, right? Yon, and Ego isn't just smothering; he's hugely narcissistic, like toxically narcissistic. That, that's his name is Ego. Exactly, his name is Ego. He's Ego, the living planet. Also, just quick sidebar: Did anybody anybody who in the mid '90s put money on there ever being a cinematic depiction of Ego, the planet, Ego, the living planet that was going to be anything other than hot garbage? Right? Like, if you had money on Ego, the planet making a solid transition to cinema. Like, I hope you're collecting now because that was a long freaking shot. He is among the stupidest characters in all of Marvel Comics. He is a giant planet with a mustache and planets don't need mustaches. Uh, but uh, I, I, I don't know. How do they keep the wind off their planet upper lip or, you know, strain the strain the, the interplanetary soup that they drink? <laughs> Ego with the living planet is a villain who, like, it's so hard to interact with him in any meaningful way, unless for some reason you have to go there, in which case, you know, he, he can spawn infinite superpowered copies of himself. So why would you go there? Right. It's just it's just one of those things right where 
him as this sort of like like uh, like John. Uh, gosh, it's sort of Zeppelin. It's sort of John Fogarty, that sort of classic rock dad with the feathered bangs and the red jacket in that sort of weird Yadro sculpture as being ego is just such a wonderful humanization of what is just such a profoundly alienated concept. And that's what the celestials are meant to be, right? Is like hugely alienated. And that's actually a big, uh, and, and it's a, the sort of the challenge of this movie is how do we make these big Marvel cosmic characters into something that we can personally identify with? I mean, by way of comparison, just to briefly touch on it, uh, Galactus, right? Galactus is uh, the rights to Galactus are owned by Fox because that went along with a Fantastic Four deal. Galactus, like Ego the Living Planet, straddles this line between being this enormous, uh, horribly threatening force of nature and also a, a total, complete freaking joke, right? Where he's like got a giant purple helmet and he's he's like he's tall, but he's not that tall. And he says, I hunger. He's going to eat the planet. Except ego is both more powerful in certain ways and also stupider in certain ways. But like when when Fox confronted the possibility of making Galactus into a movie character, they made him into like a cloud of world destroying monsters. Right. Or like meteor monster things. I don't even I've watched that movie and I barely remember it. Rise of the Silver Surfer. But they were not willing to embrace the silliness of Galactus. And, and that's really core to this whole idea of Marvel Cosmic, which is what they're really trying to build out here with Guardians, with Thor Ragnarok. Right. Is this sort of this aesthetic from the 70s and whatnot. Uh, and I just was so pleased that they found a way to, to humanize Ego the Living Planet. But that doesn't that doesn't take away from the fact that he was a horrible dad, right? Who killed the mom and uh, and demanded um, and I would even argue metaphorically molested uh, uh, um, uh, Peter Quill, right? Like even to the point of if you're not going to be a part of me in the way that I want, I will like penetrate you and make you a part of me. It's a dark movie. It's really horrific. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah let's happens. not forget he, he killed all of his other children, right? Yeah, or, uh, that's if I'm reinterpreting that that uh, massive graveyard and uh, pile of bones. Yeah, that's that, what happened. That, he that, killed yeah, them? exactly. That tidal wave of bones that or potential tidal wave of bones that uh, Nebula and Gamora come across, like that is uh, the the. Those are your brothers and sisters, you know, uh, half brothers and sisters, I suppose, right? Like that—that's uh, um, the the origin of there, because there's no other life on the on the planet besides uh, besides ego, and and I guess Star Lord loses his loses his uh, blue blue ball energy when he uh, when the planet is destroyed. Like you, you see it go out in his hands. I'm not I'm not super conversant in the the uh, comics comics background. But it it seemed pretty clear that there was a sort of sacrifice involved in in killing. There was a, a metaphorical and a real sacrifice involved in killing the father. Um, but but uh, just to pick up on something that that you brought up, Pete, this was awfully dark. There were a lot of sort of dark elements in it, right? Like there there was some like uh, in the uh, when Yandu was killing everybody with the arrow. There were some like horror slasher. Uh, you know, kind of exploitation elements in that. Um, couple, you know, a couple times the gore was sort of soft pedaled because it's a PG thirteen movie, but um, uh, but you know, it, it it's still it's it's pretty. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm aware more these days of children in movie theaters. I never you know used to be. I guess I was closer to being a child myself. But now you know, I see. I saw six year olds in the in the theaters, and there were a couple of moments in this where I thought like. Wow, those those are going to be some nightmares, right? Like those are yeah. going to be some uh some sleepless nights, some uh, you know, uh rocket uh you know, continually bl- blowing up the and making it rain bodies. Oh, sadistically know? doing so. Yeah. Like uh, it, uh, gaining great pleasure from it, you know. Uh it, it is interesting that they soft pedaled the fact that the uh, the golden people i'm forgetting the name of their of their race um, the sovereigns the sovereigns yes that yeah. their their entire battle fleet is uh, virtual right and that one um thousands of ships are obliterated from the sky no one actually dies it's just uh you know people playing a video game essentially like ender's game style um they did soft pedal that but you're right matt it's like uh the the brutality of uh of yondu and his uh and his arrow were not lost upon me. That's uh, yeah, it got kind of gruesome. Also, at the end, hilariously so, right when uh, when his successor <laughs> accidentally stabs Drax with it. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because this this was a movie. The other the other Downton Abbey moment that really struck me, and this sort of formed a bit of a B plot concept for the movie, was at the very beginning when when Rocket was hooking up the stereo and was saying like, "I want to have music while I work, while we work, right." Uh, which I think is tied into the idea. The idea of music while we work is tied into ego's dissatisfaction with life, right? Ego goes to life in other planets, and he finds it so boring, right? He's like, life is boring. Life other than me is boring. And the counterpoint to that is all the characters in Guardians of the Galaxy who whistle, who whistle while they work, who play music while they work. I mean, whistle while they work is what Yandu does, right? Because he's whistling while the arrow is killing all of his former coworkers. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, Rocket, li- and Rocket asks, like, oh, do you have any of old Quill's old music? And the only reason is so that they can play fun music while they kill people. And there's a darkness to that, obviously, but it's also something somewhat about it's there's an existential argument there right it's schopenhauer would be very comfortable with it somebody who identified music as one of the sort of key suckers in an otherwise bleak and purposeless existence right is uh the idea that, that, that that's a s-u-c-c-o-r-s right not yes 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 not, okay. no no we're not talking about like alien or whatnot uh <laughs> but but uh but this idea that all that that the things that the characters in guardians of the galaxy do are fun and and things that are gross are gross and things that are shocking are shocking and there's a really strong sentimental edge to everything that happens in the sense that it provokes an emotional response. And the music invests things with emotional response. Um, but, of course, we know Ego the Living Planet has terrible taste in music because he thinks the song Brandy is the best song ever made. <laughs> right? like, uh, <laughs> Ego the Living Planet is basic. Right, like, uh, which I hope I hope that that came through to other people. That his like his speech about how awesome this one classic rock song is, while endearing and sincere, is also just full of crap. Right, and it's also like, no, it's not the best song that anyone's ever made. It's fine. It's not even the best classic rock song with a woman's name for the title. Right? Like, is that Amy by Pure Prairie League? Maybe I don't know. Cecilia, you know, there's just a whole bunch of them that could be better. But but the, this idea of like that that uh, that that the the murder has sensation to it and feeling right and and uh, and and the the gross monster squishing and all the explosions and and the idea that the sovereigns feel see murder as like an eight bit video game maybe sixteen bit with mode seven graphics like Star Fox um, sort of like that <laughs> well yeah that's I, I mean it's it's definitely there's a lot that sort of played played for laughs and, and maybe we should talk about the idea of like what it, what what it means to be played for laughs but like the the uh the final guy right like being everyone being gathered around his video game console his like you yeah. know big game cabinet in the arcade you know watching him like the last best hope of the uh of the sovereigns and then the stakes being sort of hilariously undercut because there's a whole nother fleet everyone gets to respawn right like there's a yeah. whole nother fleet uh coming around um coming around the the nebula or the asteroid field whatever you know coming around the whatever sciencey thing they put in in the way of the uh of our heroes and the the hyper it's the, that they Fran- it's the Franoxian batteries sir man it's oh. the Flunixian batteries, the Farnusian batteries. Yeah, another yeah, another good uh another good um running joke in this is the mis- mispronunciation uh of the names. And this is like uh you know, uh it's it's played for laughs like David Hasselhoff's name gets mispronounced, the batteries are are wrong and, and you know, Drax is so deadpan all the time that that it's hilarious. But it's also I mean, ha- haven't you ever had in your family like um uh, like private names for things, you know, like uh, fake names for places that you go or for your neighbors or for people you interact with or like for restaurants or something like that. You know, these things oh, yeah. get, the, you know, these things get sort of ritualized and you're not going down the road to the Dairy Queen. You're going to the, I don't know, something, something, something. Of course, you know, now that I, I come up with it, I can't, I can't think of it. Uh, I can't think of one from my own family off the, off the top of my head. And I might not share it because those are, those are the, the sort of, uh, private things that bond uh, that that bond people together. So the idea that like if they're just every if everyone calls them the the you know frenulominous batteries or uh, uh, whatever it is, yeah. it's um you know it's uh, that's what that's what bonds them together. Yeah. So to give an example, 
my wonderful fiance uh, makes a dish that her family has made. I mean, she's she herself is not uh, Puerto Rican, but the, fam- the family has a history of being good cooks and liking to cook and and, and, and engaging other other cuisines. And they, they like to make uh, chicken asapau. Right, which is a, a Puerto Rican dish uh, that's sort of a cross between a paella and like a chicken dish. And it's got rice in it, and the way they make it, they make it with sausage. It's sort of like a gumbo, but I like it a lot. And so I always call it Chicken Awesome Pow because I always forget what it's called. It's like Chicken Awesome Pow. Sure. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's a good example. Have you guys examples? A lot of, of uh, well, like yeah, a lot of these have have roots in like uh, in tiny children mispronouncing things. Adorable. Yeah, you know, and that's, that's true. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, hey, so so just, just, oh, go ahead. Yeah, speaking of Drax. Um, I wanted to use this opportunity to dig into some of the more complicated uh, parent-child relationships going on here because um, we were running into changes, all the different you know, uh, 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 child-parent, parent-child relationships going on, right? Nebula and Gamora are the adopted daughters of Thanos. Um, Groot acts as uh, – yeah. Rocket acts well, as a father to Groot. Uh, Peter Quill also acts as a father to Groot. And then, Pete, you brought up that uh, Drax, in a way, acts as a parent to Mantis – who, yes. Of course, is very much like treated as a as a as a child or almost like a pet of ego. But, yes. But, uh, but going back to Mantis and Drax, all further complicated by the fact that there is a potential romantic thing going on as well. So yeah. how is it that they are uh, that Drax and Mantis are parent child? So so yeah. So before we 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 uh, start recording, we were listing the parent child relationships, and I listed Drax and Mantis as a parent child relationship. And I know that the movie. It's funny because the way that movies work, you would ex- sort of expect any male and female who are of a certain age uh, in in a certain body types in certain proximity to like be romantically interested in each other, which of course Drax could not be more clear. He is not in the course of this movie because she's hideous. Um, but, but, but yeah, unpack that later, but yeah, let's yeah. put it in that. So putting yeah. that aside. So I, I, I saw their relationship as mostly uh, a parenting act because there's a lot of parenting acts, not necessarily by parents, but to contrast it, right? So Mantis is parented by ego because ego wants Mantis to do something for him. Right. And so Mantis is sort of taken from her home and is sort of brought to this place and is given this life where her sole purpose is to serve ego. And she's proud of it. She's happy that she serves ego. Right. And she also has this really interesting mechanic, I would call it, for lack of a better term, superpower, I guess, where she can both feel people's feelings, but also impress her own feelings on people. Which I thought was cute. It kicks right into the Downton Abbey moment. Right. This idea of family yells at each other this idea that not everybody is supposed to feel the same way right that like that like it makes sense that ego's henchman has the power of making everybody a a compliant did you get a little chill when she said like i can make people compliant right like that's one of the other reasons ego might keep her around no whenever whenever i hear that word i think of the the god what was it was it a disney movie a flight of the navigator do you remember that? Yeah. That in, it, it involves a time travel and uh, a young boy piloting a spaceship, um, and the uh, the spaceship scans his brain and learns to speak with him like a radio DJ because that's all the you know the pop music and the television and uh, and all the the uh, you know intellectual junk food that he has filling his brain. And whenever the uh, whenever the spaceship does anything, it says compliance. When it you know it says like you know yeah I don't know take us to New York compliance and I I can't uh, I can't ever uh, take that word seriously because it's been <laughs> ruined for me by Flight of the Navigator but yes yeah your point yeah. is is well taken uh, I mean yeah, that, I'm an outlier yeah. in this respect I mean other of us uh, that word has been ruined for us by uh, you know the modern regulatory uh, burdens placed on us by uh, you know <laughs> by our office jobs. Fair, fair, fair. I can I can make people compliant, by which I mean they have filled out all of their paperwork and met all of the necessary OSHA regulations (laughs) and whatnot uh, for whatever industry they happen to be in. But like, but so Drax and Mantis. So Mantis is a child of ego who confesses that she has no social skills and doesn't know how to function as an individual. And Drax like takes her under his wing and is like, let me tell you how people work. Right. (laughs) And of course, Drax is like, it's like Dogberry and Verges from much about nothing. It's a Shakespearean, it's a Shakespearean uh, clown couple that is meant to sort of mirror and reflect uh, the other side of some of the things that are happening in the main plot. In, In many situations, they're the lower class version of the sort of upper class heroes who are engaging as 
in a sort of similar or related sort of conflict, right? So Peter Quill has to indi- learn to individuate from ego by learning all of the cruel things that ego has done, and also by sort of seeing the ways in which the other people around him parent each other. And also, it's about Gamora kind of coming around, right? And like uh, Gamora as a, as a mother uh, is as a sort of sister mother, right? And the role that women have with each other when men abuse them, uh, it's to sort of take charge and kind of heal each other is a big part of this movie. But but the point being that like uh, that Peter Quill is going through all this and Mantis is also going through it. She needs to individuate from ego and Drax uh, takes time to compare Mantis to his own kid, right? Like you remind me of my child and, and she's like, oh, your child was hideous. It's like, no, my child was innocent, right? But this idea that that Drax confronts Mantis with really nasty truths about her right like and they're not truths they're lies right but but drax thinks they're true right but but drax tells mantis things that really conflict with her experience that really conflict with how she has lived up until this point she talks he talks about other planets he talks about you know at what it's like to like lose a family mantis learns about death from drax right which is crazy because there's i mean you don't. You get a sense that Mantis doesn't really fully understand, or is sort of like uh, because of Ego's presence has sort of psychologically blocked the reality of what Ego is doing. And it's only after she shares in Drax's grief for his family that she then sort of confesses about because that's when she wants to tell Drax about all of the dead children, right? Because she finally understands what a dead child is because Drax told her about death. Uh, yeah. Right. Which is crazy when you think about it, right? And here's the other thing. When she touches Drax and Drax is thinking about his dead family and his dead child, she weeps and cries and she is so sad. And and what is Drax like? Yeah, Drax he, is like I noticed this as well. It was a, it was yeah. a really good moment of acting and a really good moment of storytelling, I thought. Uh, yeah. because he's he's sort of impassive, right? Like his mm-hmm. his uh his face is set. He's, you know, uh it's clear that he's not enjoying himself, right? But but he's not uh partaking emotional in the kind of the high level of affect uh that that she feels. And this is yeah. maybe because he's used to it, maybe because he's characterologically sort of different and it's not this is not how he uh, sort of addresses his his own grief, um, or you know, uh, for all 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 kinds of reasons that we we could speculate on. But there is there is a marked difference in how they uh, respond emotionally, affectively to the to the yeah. issue of the grief. Yeah, Drax has coped. Drax has come to terms in some way with the death of his family at this point, which is very different from how he was in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie when he was just out for vengeance and incapable of functioning in any other way. Whereas in this movie, he's learned he's met the new family. He's learned how to laugh at things. He didn't really laugh a lot before. Drax has learned how to laugh. He's he's like he makes fun of people. Right. But he is. But the big thing is that. Uh, it's just it's interesting. The big thing is that he's learned to cope with death and he's learned to cope with loss. And Mantis, as a child, hasn't learned that yet. And and it is interesting to think of this dichotomy right between parents and children have to always be the same versus parents and children are necessarily different. And there has to be teaching that happens. And teaching is about extending this love and this connection and this desire for helping this person through the difference between the two of you, the necessary difference between the two of you, because you're different people. And and because one of you is a child and one of you is an adult and you're different places in life. So there's ways in which you're not going to understand each other. And so, you know, there, she's literally touching him and feeling exactly what he feels. And yet her response is so different because she's such a different person. And then ego doesn't allow that kind of thing to exist in his world. Everybody has to be listening to, you know, Q107, Tuper Tuesday, classic rock all the time. Right. Like uh, it's always the same. Right. Uh, whereas, with you know, with Drax and Mantis, you know, the child can be hideous. <laughs> That's an ugly baby. What it really means is that you're different from how I think of things. You're different from me. Right. And so and learning death in that context of kind of people being different. I mean, it's 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 one of the climactic plot actions in the story, although it's kind of buried a little bit like it's entirely possible not to see that moment as the huge motivator for how everything with ego gets resolved. But that's part of the elegance of how the movie folds together, being funny and being serious, because there are times when it's being serious, where what's happening doesn't really matter. And there's times where it's being funny, where what happens like matters a lot. Um, so that's how I saw Drax's Mantis's parent. 
in yeah, that I mean, t- yeah. just picking up on this a little bit, like in in uh, all the the month that we talked about uh, the the concept of family in relation to the Fast and the the Furious, like the the family in Fast and the Furious are like the Lost Boys, right? Like they're they're family without uh, without parents, you know. And I know that Dom and Le- Letty sort of, fu- but Dom and Letty are like a, a, an older brother and sister, or an older brother and sister in law, or something like that, right? Like yeah. that's that's uh, they they may have. Have some sort of influence, uh, but they don't necessarily have authority in the way that 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 a parent has authority. You know, being yeah. the uh, being the author of the child, and it's if it's through uh, you know it's through kind of excellence that they get their. Um, that they derive their sort of standing in that uh, that that unit, like excellence and sort of resourcefulness and generosity, uh, I guess. Um, th- this when when we talk about like in in general, this is talking about like this film talks about uh, the difference between that sort of lateral family uh, kind of sibling type relationships and mm-hmm. sort of vertical family, right? Like, like parent child type relationships where, where you're, you're dealing with being part of a lineage, uh, rather than dealing with being part of a community. Right. And, and the, the, uh, salient cleavage, right. Like, or the salient, um, yeah, the salient cleavage has to do with with uh, not necessarily with belonging versus not belonging, but with fulfilling versus not fulfilling, right? Right. And uh, and and sort of of taking taking your own way, and and like that that um, conflict has different forms at at different you know at different ages right like the relationship between a sibling the relationship between Gamora and, and Nebula was uh, you know we might say with some understatement like uh, highly rivalrous <laughs> in their uh, <laughs> you know in their early life uh, and and they can but then as you know as they both sort of develop the resources of adulthood a little bit they can um, they can sort of uh, uh, bond over bond over that traumatic though it was. They can kind of bond over the trauma in a way that no one else can because no one else was there, you know. And like this is you know I have a I, I have a brother and like he and he and I fought like cats and dogs when we were uh, when we were younger and like in now in our thirties uh, you know I've had have this incredible bond um, that no that no one else really uh, sort of gets you know like uh, in in the way that like we'll sort of look at we'll look at the same thing and just burst out laughing uh, because we find the same things funny because our, our humor was formed in the same, uh, in the same sort of crucible. And like, this is, you know, this, this is a, the, the idea that there are sort of different obligations, you know, um, at different uh, stages of life, vis-a-vis your relationships with your your uh, parent or parents or authority figures, or in you know various structures of non-traditional family, and uh, uh, with your peers, with your sort of sibling or cousin, you know, type relationships among a particular a particular generation. Like this idea put me put me in mind of the uh, psychological theory of of Eric Erickson. Like Peter Mark, are you familiar with? with uh this particular work with the the like the psycho psychosocial crises at different stages uh ranging from from birth to adulthood no uh, no nope. this is new to me so this yeah. is this is a, a sort of late actually in, in the sort of uh marvel heyday right like in the in the uh uh 60s 2008 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. oh hey yo um the uh this this is uh, like a lot of marvel sensibility this is a product of of post war america right like sort of post war uh, pre-Vietnam America. Um, the the uh, the uh, theory of sort of of development that of develop kind of psychoanalytic theory of of um, uh, social development or or psychic development uh, has to do with passing through various stages related to the age uh, that you are. You know, infancy, early childhood, uh, later childhood, school age, adolescence, young adult, uh, and so on, uh, and that it. Each, you know, <laughs> at each stage, there is a sort of existential choice that you make. Uh, the for for the infant, it's it's trust versus mistrust, right? And it has to do with is the world uh, a safe place where I can grow and thrive, uh, or is the world a dangerous place full of. Um, 
you know, uh, uh, full of uh, traps and and things that are going to hurt me and and things things like this, right? Trust versus mistrust. Um, in uh, uh, in adolescence, uh, the the relevant social crisis is uh, ego identity versus role confusion. Um, are you gonna you know Are you going to become the person that you are, or are you going to uh, you know uh, become confused about a role that you feel like you should have to play or a role that you feel like is being uh, thrust on you, uh, demanded of you, um, and and to kind of not know who you are. Anyway, the two for like uh, for young adulthood and older adulthood, the two relevant ones, uh, I think, are the um, are the the. Uh, crises of for younger adults, uh, you know, let's say majority age to the age of about 40, um, intimacy versus isolation. Uh, are you going to be, are, you know, are you going to sort of close off or are you going to be open to vulnerability and relationship with other people? Intimacy versus isolation. And in um, older adulthood, uh, the, the choices between generativity and stagnation. And so I you know I was sort of put in to I was put in mind of this by sort of thinking about the movie and now that I've re- reviewed those it it strikes me that this is the these are the two kind of uh, conflicts of the of the of the two male characters, right? Like Kurt Russell is wondering about generativity versus stagnation. Now it seems like he's very generative because he makes a planet and he you know plants things on and and has a lot of children and things like this. But his his goal is to sort of decrease diversity, right? Like his goal is to make everything him uh, and to uh, you know to kind of bring a stop to change and bring a stop to to difference. So it's it's really he's on the side of. Uh, he's on the side of stagnation. Um, you know, uh, uh, Peter Quill is talking about is in the the crisis of intimacy versus isolation because he's you know he's deciding uh, with he's deciding. Uh, whether he sort of joins his father in this or whether he is part of a of a family with the potential for a romantic partnership and with you know uh all kinds of you know all kinds of like pure family yeah. members the, uh, i just want to jump in quickly and point out there's that key scene where gamora uh is like he feels like gamora is pulling him away from his father right and so like he's clearly drifting away from a romantic relationship with gamora uh and, and towards a closer relationship with his father so I'll just say yes. Yeah, and, and that yeah. that like, uh, but that this that this is. I mean, I sort of, you know, you sort of think about you can you could probably like map each of these onto a different, um, onto a different child, right? Like for for a a um, uh, like early Oedipal stage child, uh, initiative versus guilt, right? Is the uh, or actually for a late uh, uh, for like a latency child, industry versus inferiority, which is an interesting way to think about the conflict, the kind of the the internal psychological conflict that that Groot faces, right? Like, uh, <laughs> is Groot going to be is Groot inferior or is Groot uh, industrious and useful and and helpful? And like the fact that Groot is so quick to take bridge at you know dragonflies and things like this <laughs> right like like points to a real uh you know a real fear about uh, feelings of of inferiority that that um you know that that he might have and that that like uh, it's it's a it's a success of the the marvel movies generally that they can write decent the best ones anyway i should say can write decent ensemble drama right and this is a case where i think that that's borne out where where uh not only does everyone have a role to play in in telling the plot but everyone has a a sort of unique expression of the thematic material having to do with you know learning development growth and you know to a certain extent uh individuation uh with respect to you know with respect to your parents right yeah i I love oh go ahead can you map Rocket onto one of those yes. stages? And what is his internal, what is his conflict? Well, his, his is about, right, like, his, he's also in this sort of intimacy versus isolation uh, sort of young adult uh, 
a place, right? He he's a little more well defended. Um, you know, he's he's like he, he rather than you know rather than uh, uh, Peter Quill who had who has all these um, all this kind of virtuosity and this kind of ease and this sort of easy charm, right? He is all defense mechanism and sort of uh, sort of pushing people away out of uh, out of fear. Uh, so he kind of shades towards the isolation side of the intimacy versus isolation thing. But there was a great, I mean, but, you know, this sort of double meaning thing at the end where it's like, wait, he just pushed people away because he was, uh, he, he really loved them and, and wanted them to know that he, he cared about them at the end when, you know, Rocket's ears uh, perk up is really, um, you know, and, and that's nice. They hit that exactly the, the right amount without having to like underline or, or italicize it. Uh, uh, too much. You remember the scene that I'm talking about, right? Yeah, Refresh yeah. my memory a little bit, Matt. Okay. It's uh, has it been has it been a couple of days. It's it's near the end of the movie, and now of course now that I bring it up, I forget who they're talking about. Um, Pete, do you remember who? They're talking they're... about Yondu. It's oh, right. Yondu's funeral, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and and talking about how he, yeah, exactly, how he related to people, and though he had a, uh, though he had a tough exterior, he had a, a sweet nougaty center, and that like there was a that a lot of these things were were uh, psychological defenses meant to kind of uh, blunt the the pain caused by caring so much, and that's um you know and and Rocket sort of identifies with this, and uh, you know is is visibly moved by the by the description ah, and sort of yep. rec- recognizes him, himself in his own personality in this uh, mm. uh, in in this description. It, could I posit a, an alternate view also? Because I loved your description and it helped for me uh, articulate some of what I was feeling about a part of the movie that some people I've talked to have not liked and which I thought was some of the best. I was really glad that this part was in the movie, which is when you think about uh, – so what are the things Rocket is trying to do? I, I would posit that also he maybe grows to that point over the course of the movie. But Rocket is also in a situation, I think, of what you described as ego identity versus uh, role confusion. Yeah. Right? Because, because you know, uh, Chris Pratt or Star-Lord is, is literally in the ego identity place and Rocket gets left behind. Of course, I don't think that they necessarily were reading Eric Erickson while they're making it. It doesn't matter if they were writing things that rang true and Eric Erickson is writing things that ring true, then you can converge right on the same sorts of ideas. That's sort of how literature and psychology work. But I love the idea that Rocket gets left behind with Nebula and uh, Quill leaves with Gamora. And Rocket and Nebula are both uh, kind of heterogeneous beings who haven't who did not get to choose their own bodies. Right. Because Rocket, he's made into being this raccoon and he is not at peace at all with being made a raccoon. Right. And he, and he rejects it. And it's been done to him by these horrible scientists that he hates. Right. And so he rejects the idea of being called a raccoon. Of course, also being called a trash panda. It's so much worse to be called a trash panda. <laughs> um, he's like, oh, trash panda is great. So Rocket, raccoon, Rocket Raccoon is trying to figure out he's trying to individuate himself from Quill. Right. Because they don't know they can't. They're they're the siblings in that relationship where Rocket wants to separate himself from Quill and and Quill doesn't understand or care that Rocket wants to individuate himself because because Quill is literally the older guy. He's more advanced in his emotional development. Right. And he's moved past this particular conflict. But Nebula has that wonderful speech about how every time she lost to Gamora, Thanos replaced a part of her body with machinery. And and I love this idea that in the sort of psychological arc of parent and child that runs through this, there's a period in adolescence where these people who have this sort of body horror about themselves are grouped together. Like Gamora is much more comfortable with who she is than Nebula is. Gamora is much more at peace with being an adopted child of Thanos than Nebula is. And Quill is a lot more comfortable with being like a spacefaring hero guy and who he is in that than Rocket is in who he is, at least in the scope of this movie. And I love the idea that Rocket and Nebula have something in common. And maybe you can even chart Rocket's growth and his arc as being like when he's in that spot in the movie, when he's when he's uh, Claymore mining the the dozens of assassins coming to kill him, right? Um, 
when he's in that part of the movie, he sort of is in the same place as Nebula. But then later in the movie, he ends up in the same place as Yondu, which is like a growth, right? Because Yondu is more emotionally advanced than Nebula is. Because because Yondu has moved to that part of generativity, right? And Yondu has moved to that part of older age where he is creating something, right? And, and he's also become the father figure for Quill and kind of come to understand what that relationship means. And also in terms of him being rejected by his own uh, friends from the Ravagers. But that, that sort of spins it out at Infinitum. I, I, should, I, this, yeah. I should say, I, I should add that in this particular theory, and, and by the way, this is what that's definitely worth a link in the in the show notes. So if you're interested in this, go read the Wikipedia article and, and some of the secondary sources. Um, or I guess Wikipedia is not a, uh, a, a, a... By secondary sources, I mean not as opposed to primary sources. I mean as opposed to tertiary sources like, like Wikipedia. Uh, each stage has a signal virtue that kind of charts your... Uh, that, uh, that charts your... Um, course through it and in in the adulthood uh, the kind of later adulthood one um, the signal virtue is care right and and Yondu is the one who who arrives at an ability uh, ability to care and and that's uh, that's an, an incredible one he's he's uh, Pete would you say that by the end of the film he's practically perfect in every way <laughs> How wonderful, like, you don't, you often think of Mary Poppins as one of the great stories, but I just love that it got, the way it was invoked in this movie. Uh, I heard the actual line was improvised, but I don't think the association is improvised, right? Because Mary Poppins is a story about children whose parents are so self-involved that, and that are, and they're not, they're self-involved in a way that makes them unhappy and makes them incapable of connecting with the children. And Mary Poppins comes along and like makes the children happy. And by making the children happy makes the parents happy right and that this is sort of like what yondu does <laughs> for quill right in that he like he makes quill happy because quill's in this relationship where his parents where his father in particular like is not invested in his well-being at all and is totally obsessed with himself and 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 uh yondu comes along and doesn't break the parent-child bond he doesn't have the authority to do that but he cares enough to make quill into like a happy person uh and of course then the idea of what this does to like like Quill ref, Quill's happiness kind of reflects the happiness of his mother and his father. That gets a little bit complicated, but I, I, love, I love this idea that. And I'm looking through the Eric Erickson now, and I can see that the core virtue in identity versus role confusion is fidelity, right? The virtue of fidelity, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's interesting to think of Nebula as having wrestled with the virtue of fidelity, right? Uh, like both the like her fidelity to Thanos. Which at this point is like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to hunt him down with every resource available to anyone in the universe and kill this dark god that mur- that abused me. But but under this, she develops a sense of faithfulness to Gamora, and to and which she seems incapable of doing. Not just that she doesn't want to do it, but she's incapable of doing it in the first movie, where she's like a killer robot um, or cyborg, I should say. Anyway, this is really interesting. I love this. I love this reading. Um, yeah. Well, that, and yeah, it's, it's neat to sort of think of it like a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of sort of uh, conceptual frameworks that you can kind of shove onto something, shove onto a, a creative work don't necessarily help you go deeper into it. But I feel like this one, this one does. And the idea, the idea of what, what rocket, arrives at is is a kind of fidelity but it's sort of a it's a fidelity to himself right it's a fidelity to to you know to who he is and and you know nebula is very uh is very similar to that right like it's it's a kind of self-acceptance uh a murderous self-acceptance but you know <laughs> let's not like uh you know let's let's just, you know tony soprano did a lot of good work on himself like that's uh uh you know it's important to be to be psychologically healthy if you're going to be a uh uh, if you're going to be a murderer, wasn't Gross Point Blank about that? Uh, I believe so. Yes, yeah, so you have to confront your past before you murder your present. <laughs> <laughs> before you, uh, right? Exactly. Before before you uh, murder your parents. Um, but uh, can I also name also just to add to cap all this off the thing that really pulls it all together? Please, uh, that rug really it really tied the room together. So, so one villain in this movie is Ego. Who is the undi- uh, the uh, narcissistic parent who doesn't let his children individuate, right? And sees his children all as extensions of himself. The other villain are the sovereigns, who are spoiled children with no parents, 
right? <laughs> and and who play video games all day and are are ter- like sort of Paris Hilton level uh, decadent in their sort of uh, trotting themselves around and beautifying themselves, right? Who don't bother themselves with anybody else's problems. Totally self obsessed, right? Like uh, you can. So, so interesting say, yeah. that you went Paris Hilton and not Kardashian, but it's the sort of it's the bronzed color, it's the blondness, yeah. right? That really she just she just superficially looks like uh, Paris Hilton. A little I think, bit, is part yeah. of it. Which it makes her more like Paris Hilton, the image, than Paris Hilton, the person, who we can uh, speculate is quite a bit more uh, sophisticated than the than the, the sovereigns are and has a deeper sense of conflict uh, about what, what happens in her life. But, yeah, this idea – I love the idea of the sovereigns as spoiled children uh, who have no parents. Like, like what's – what is the um, – I mean, I guess they're the Lost Boys without Peter Pan, except they're not sloppy. They're just super neat, right? But uh, I'm trying to think. Are there other examples of spoiled children with no parents? parents in literature who are bad i guess pinocchio and pleasure island but they also are sort of uh ne'er-do-wells and uh they're not really spoiled yeah they don't i mean it's it is a unique case because they managed to sort of recapitulate adult society right like without yeah. uh without necessarily because uh, in, in in pleasure island it's it's lord of the flies right like it's the war of all against all and that's right. uh that's not what that's not what this is there's a sort of highly regimented form of of social organization i mean it's yeah. more like actual high school Right. It's a a, a system like that can only exist in a, you know, in a closed system that's enabled by by outside forces, you know, parents, parents and and educators in the case of high school, uh, you know, some sort of um, some sort of galactic uh, manner of privilege in the case of, of the sovereigns, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, did you notice like the the uh, the rug the carpet is such a great example of that of like we are playing at being adults right like and and you didn't roll the thing out right and then they're all sort of freaking out right um also i think wasn't there was i the only one who saw this there seemed to sort of be racial social roles within the sovereigns right there was like the sovereigns were racist Right. Like it looked like the servants. I mean, maybe I maybe I was just seeing what I wanted to see, but I was struck by the sort of strongly Aryan features of the sort of male warrior sovereigns and the sort of. uh, Sure. They all looked like they all looked like elves from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and I thought the servants might have been black. I'm huh. not sure, uh, but it was tough to tell, right? Because they're all gold. They're all gold, and they certainly were dressed like like servants, like servants or slaves, right? And I mean, and I mean this: the sovereigns are evil. Like, like this is not saying the movie is racist. This is saying the sovereigns are an example of a bad way to organize people and an oppressive way, and and a, they're they're a danger to the galaxy, right? They're the bad guys. They're funny, and they are making Adam Warlock apparently, which is a whole other kettle of fish. But uh, but they're bad. Right. And the way then it's funny because you see them play the video games and that humanizes them and makes it more fun. But you have to remember that there's the sinister side to it as well, that they don't have to deal with the consequences that everybody else has to deal with, which is why they don't ever really grow up because they because they get to use mommy and daddy's money to solve their problems. Right. By flying the spaceships that are have no consequences to go fight their battles for them. Right. As opposed to doing it themselves. Yeah. They're also sort of fundamentally uncurious. Right. Like they're. The, and and sort of unreflective about their own about their own place in the world and and why it should be uh, why it should be that way, which is a uh, you know um, a bit of a uh, a bit of a childlike way to be, you know, not yeah. uh, not not reflective, um, but very but very shiny and very good at video games apparently. <laughs> Apparently, apparently. Uh, by the way, adolescent group playing playing video games and and uh, having jizz all over his room was a very. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's what that was supposed to be, right? Like that. Oh yeah, that's like the, that's like the Spider Man, the scene in the Tobey Maguire Spider Man where there's uh, where there's just web everywhere. Uh, the you know um, was, was pretty great. And, and, um, you know, seeing, uh, Chris Pratt have to kind of step into that parenting role, uh, a little bit, you know, like, um, is, uh, 
I don't know is is good. I mean, with the with the with the movie Ulta is and and like being put into the kind of the uncool role of having to you know tell him to to turn that music down and and go outside and you know mow the lawn or whatever mow the twigs all uh, <laughs> from from out of his room. Um, I, I, the 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 movie proposes a kind of like. Um, I guess I, it's it's easy to say that that narcissism is bad. It, it's beyond narcissism, right? Like in people, narcissism is born of of just tremendous insecurity, right? And when, when it's narcissists are not the people with the 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 best self image. Narcissists are the most vulnerable, and that's why they're so obsessively focused. You can sort of gauge someone's maturity by how uh, how violent their emotional reaction to um, you know threats to their uh, threats to their statuses. Yeah. For examples of that, go to twitter.com slash real Donald Trump. <laughs> hey, Sorry, that's neither here nor right there. <laughs> he's sort of gold. <laughs> he, he is... <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's use Erickson's, uh, psychosocial stages to, uh, to psychoanalyze Donald. Trump. No, let's absolutely not <laughs> do that. That is left as an exercise for the listener in the comments on the, the show notes. No, but what it, what it seems to propose about, uh, uh about parenting is that the the quality you know ego's ego is sort of beyond beyond a narcissist he's he's um you know a hermit he's a, a isolationist he's a he's a uh supremacist right like he's he's a uh uh me supremacist uh it, oh you know what he is he's a light supremacist there it is. I, I knew that. I knew that joke was was somewhere. I just had to to feel around for it a little bit. But but um, it's uh it's beyond that. Uh, he's uh he doesn't see. He doesn't see uh, Star Lord uh, Peter Quill for for who he is, and like the the what emerges is a is a sort of ethics that that have to do with seeing people authentically, right? Like you could argue that when when Nebula and Gamora. Um, manage to you know come to some sort of resolution it's when gamora manages to see nebula and then and then the other way around right like this sort of um this empathy i mean the the idea of empathy is is developed but this uh, but it's it's not exactly empathy because they don't feel one another's experience but they can sort of tolerate you know uh one another's experience and they can sort of um acknowledge uh yeah. one another's experience and 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 in that sort of real uh i'm trying to to find the right word for it recognition might be the yeah. regard be, maybe yeah Exactly right, like that. Yeah. That because it, it, it means to to sort of look, but to look with with discernment, uh, a little compassion, um, and a uh, and a kind of allowance that that the other person's a kind of acknowledgement that the other person's experience is legitimate, right? Like, and and in that recognition uh, is is when the um, is when the the relationships are possible. One way well, it's a little obscure, but one that that's notable is when. Uh, Chris Pratt asks Zoe Saldana to dance, uh, right, and like says, you know, I I know you're a dancer. Not everybody, not everybody knows. And she, you know, she's like, well, if you tell anyone, I'll kill you. The the uh, there's a recognition in that that is um, the you know the basis for the basis for a healthy relationship. There are the basis for some sort of intimacy and mutual vulnerability. Yeah, the unspoken thing is probably related to what you're talking about, right? This idea that Chris Pratt and and uh, Zoe Saldana, or rather Quill and Gamora, aren't the only characters who have an unspoken thing. Uh, and in fact, even having the unspoken thing is sort of a component of a spoken thing, not the opposite of it. <laughs> right. The sort of the, the energy between uh, Sam and Diane and Cheers, right, that exists as part of their relationship. Yeah, it's cast into sharper relief by the fact that they don't talk about what's really going on. But it's no less than the relationship between Fraser and Lilith, right, where they do talk about what's going on, um, and which is it's just different. It's interesting to think about it in that in that respect. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, well, uh, Pete and Mark, I, I recognize you. We, I, I recognize <laughs> our unspoken thing. Mm. I mean, that's what the funeral for Yondo is all about, right? Is recognizing him. Yeah. Uh, 
Right. Yeah, that's that's a it's an interesting thing. Like what what is your task as a as a eulogizer? You know, I've I've been lucky in my life and not had to give speeches like that, but but like you sort of compare this with the uh with the funeral of Spock, which to me it was clearly echoing. Um Oh yeah. And the the uh, and you sort of think about like what what is the task of some of something like that, and it's it's to sort of give give voice to the collective grief, uh, you know. But but it's also there, there's an obligation with respect to the person, right? And and it might be something like to describe them accurately, you know, or n- not even accurately because that might be unkind. Um, to, <laughs> but to, you're hideous. <laughs> <laughs> you are you are beautiful on the inside, but on the outside you are you are you are just so disgusting and ugly. <laughs> uh that that right yeah it's i mean, it, it, for what it's worth all the, the the women are subject are subjected to that sort of discourse and with gamora's body being uh not gamora uh, nebula's body being replaced and things like this uh and the men by and large uh, by and large aren't except for rocket which is why he came up in in connection with uh with nebula when you were when you were talking about but yes um well uh let's let's all go forth be beautiful on the inside um i think i think uh you know it's a different style of music but i think there were great sages that said to be excellent to each other and to party on dudes so thank you very much for listening to this podcast uh thanks very much to pete and mark for uh overthinking guardians of the galaxy volume two with me uh check Check out that book club, The Triumphant Return of the Overthinking It Book Club for George Orwell's dystopian masterpiece, 1984. Find out what the Orwellian is all about at overthinkingit.com slash store. And uh, if, you, uh, if you happen to be in New York, come party with us uh, on Saturday, May 13th. Uh, find details about that on Facebook. We're all going to be watching the Eurovision Song Contest together live, and uh, it's going to be a big party. We will be back next week with more Overthinking it till then visit us on the web where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve. Young Peter Quill growing up in the 80s also watched Kurt Russell movies like Escape to New York. Do you think he watched Sylvester Stallone movies? (laughs) (laughs) Do you think he watched Tango and Cash and saw the Ravagers teaming up with Ego the Living Planet? (laughs) Do you think he watched Miley Cyrus as a robot? Because she was in this movie, too. <laughs> I don't know if she has an opportunity to do that. Actually, you know, perhaps the strongest reading of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two is as a soft sequel to John Carpenter's The Thing, right? <laughs> like that's what this is what happens after all that. <laughs>